The topic of eating disorders can make people really uncomfortable. It's not something that sees much attention, and according to my expert, it might be so well hidden for a number of reasons, including shame, trendy diets, injury, or just because the person engaged in the bad habits doesn't realize they have a problem. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Jessica Setnik. Jessica is a dietitian with over 25 years of experience who also regularly consults with other health professionals on a global scale to ensure better education. She's here today to discuss the various and numerous eating disorders and the impact it has on your life long term. Also, a little shout out to Podbean, my host site, for once again featuring the show on the front page. It's always a huge honor, and I hope I can use this momentum to take back a top education spot, as well as grow the audience even more. If you're a new listener, I'm so happy you found the show. And if you're a long-time listener, thank you so much for being with me along this wild and crazy journey. Either way, I hope you'll be around for years to come as I do my very best to make this show into the greatest version of itself. For now, let's make sure our diets aren't harming us. Welcome to the show, Jessica Setnik. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Sure, I'm happy to. So we have not met before, and I am on a mission to educate the world about eating disorders and also to make sure that no one has to feel embarrassed about talking about their eating issues. I've been in the eating disorder field for 25 years. I'm trained as a dietitian. I no longer work as a dietitian with individuals. I do educational and training events for professionals, and I consult with health professionals all over the world about the challenges that they face in our industry. Interesting. And what got you into the field of working with eating disorders? So it starts with what got me into the field of being in nutrition in the first place, because it's all intertwined. I was in college with no direction. I mean, you think being in college is a direction, but that's a very vague direction, right? So I had no uh, no major, but I was taking all these classes in anthropology because they were what was interesting to me. And then my friend Casey said, you should take this nutrition class. It's an easy A, it counts as an elective. So I took nutrition and fell in love with it. And I just thought this is so interesting what happens to food once it goes inside your body. I just thought that was so amazing because it's something that happens without you being consciously aware of it. And I just thought this is so cool. But I was also intrigued by the choices we make, how food gets to us, the cultural aspects of food, the things that are really incorporated into anthropology. So I ended up getting sort of a dual major anthropology with a concentration in nutrition and then going to graduate school for sports nutrition, thinking I wanted to work in the sports field. And what I realized as I went through the very traditional nutrition dietitian process is that 
there wasn't a lot of room for those things that I was interested in, the aspects of culture that brought in your history, your background, your intergenerational history, the choices that you made, how you felt about those choices that you made with your eating before you made them, how you felt after you made them. All of those things that I felt like were so important, you might sort of umbrella them into the psychology of eating. None of that was really considered in most of the areas of nutrition in, let's say, 1995, when I was going to graduate school. If you wanted to talk about that stuff, the only place it was really kosher to talk about was in the eating disorder arena. And so eating disorders was considered very fringy in nutrition. There were some people who, and still do, think that there is no role for dietitians in the treatment of eating disorders. I heartily disagree, but it was that idea of this is a very niche specialty that you want to be in. And so I decided to pursue that niche specialty because that was really where the pieces of nutrition that intrigued me so much and that I felt like this is really where we can help people. That was really where it was housed. Now, 25 years later, I think there's a lot of that involved in any aspect of nutrition in diabetes care or anything really in pediatrics. But at the time, it was much more relegated to eating disorders, which worked out fine for me because that was a really good fit for the way my brain worked. And, you know, I didn't even understand at the time that I had been through my own eating disorder. I I didn't really, you know, it was such a, like I said, a niche thing. It wasn't something anyone talked about really in school to become a dietitian. So um, I found an affinity for it after I already found sort of the academic interest. Then I realized how much it applied to my own life. And then I realized, wow this is an area where I can make a really big difference in people's lives. And, and that that's the whole path from beginning to probably where I am now, or at least to the beginning of the beginning of how I got interested in this field. That's quite a long, quite a long path you had to take to get here. When we're talking about eating disorders, what is kind of the, the general like umbrella of what an eating disorder is? I'm so glad you asked that even without prompting, because An eating disorder is such a very specific kind of word in the medical sense. It's a diagnostic criteria. And in reality, in the real world, eating dysfunction takes many different sizes, shapes, and methods and and may not always fit those very limiting diagnostic criteria. So in answer to your question of what is the umbrella, I would say dysfunctional eating is the term I prefer, something that kind of embraces the idea that anything that you do with your eating or your food or your body can take you away from your goals and that that might be different from someone else's goals. So in other words, if I eat carrots at lunch today, then maybe it's because I think carrots taste really good. If you eat carrots for lunch today, it might be because you heard eating carrots will make you drop 25 pounds in the next week. And so we're both eating carrots, perfectly nutritious food, but the motive is so different and important that in one of our cases, it might be dysfunctional. In the other case, it might not. So that's the way I think of eating disorders or disordered eating or dysfunctional eating, any of those words, is it's the umbrella of why we do things with food other than nourishing ourselves. Gotcha. It's very much about the intent behind it. Agreed. Yes. The motive, the nuance, the details. Yes. And that's why there is no one size fits all nutrition and there is no one size fits all cure or treatment for an eating disorder. Because as dietitians, that's our superpower, I think, is sifting through what someone's doing with their food, the whys and the hows, and figuring out what is really nutrition related or can be solved with nutrition. And what is maybe not nutrition related that someone is trying to solve with nutrition, but really we 
you know, we serve a very important purpose of helping someone get connected with the appropriate service, which might be a gastroenterologist, it might be a cardiologist, it might be a therapist, because they're trying to do something with food that can't actually be solved with food. Yeah, interesting. So how do these things form? Is it just like one day, you just kind of realize like, oh, I want to drop an enormous amount of weight, and I'm going to do it in any way possible? Or is it something that kind of like, just builds up over time, it slowly gets worse and worse. Both. Yes. Yes. And so for some people, absolutely. It happens exactly the way you described at first. Someone decides to lose weight and their method to do that is either over-exercising or under-eating. And both of those trigger brain chemistry cascades that can keep it going. Now, what we don't know is what's the difference between the person who says, I'm going to under-eat or we might say, they might say, go on a diet. As a dietitian, I would say under eat. Um, I'm just going to do that for two weeks until this event happens and I'm going to lose weight. And then after that event happens, they're like, yeah, I didn't enjoy that at all. Moving on. Versus another person who says, oh, wow, that really, it's not conscious. We don't say like, that felt really good on my brain chemistry. Like, I felt like I was alive during that dieting period. I want to keep this going, even if losing weight or or under eating isn't a healthy choice for me, because it's not that conscious. It's just sort of like, oh, that feels really good to me. The same way playing video games feels good to some people and bowling feels good to other people. Under eating feels really brain chemically good to certain people. So there's a genetic component or a biological physiological component. And we don't really know why what turns on for some people is under eating, what turns on for some people is under eating, then overeating. For some people, what turns on is under eating, then overeating, then compensatory behaviors. So that's the part we don't really know, but we do know that under eating very often does turn on a cascade of eating disorder behaviors. But there are also specific things that turn that on too. So for example, a concussion, um, an illness, uh, even COVID, right? Losing the ability to smell and taste can make someone lose interest in eating. Um, there's lots of different things, depression, anxiety, ADHD, ADHD medicine. There are lots of things that physically can trigger an eating disorder, but that even is only one component. There's still addiction-related reasons people develop eating disorders. There are then traumatic stress events that happen that cause people to develop eating disorders. And then there's just learned behavior that causes people to develop eating disorders. So there are so many answers to your question, probably as many answers as there are people with eating disorders. So that's why it becomes very unfortunate when we try to, to lump people together in categories, because really there is no one answer. We have to really look individually to see what, what process someone's going through, because if someone isn't eating because they're depressed, then we can't put them in a group with someone who's, let's say, had a traumatic experience and that's why they're not eating. They're not gonna get the same thing out of it. They're not gonna benefit. It's not appropriate. And yet that's how eating disorder treatment is most of the time nowadays. It's like, oh, so these 10 people don't eat enough to sustain life. We'll put them in a group together and they'll all get better. And it's not how it works Degrees. because they really have the underlying pathways. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear you say like, oh, it can come from any of these things because you could have a concussion. And now this like sudden change in your life just causes you to slip into one of these patterns. And then you said right, something... because it's a brain injury. Exactly. Yeah. And then you said something that like weirdly resonated with a piece of my past, like deep lodged into my brain, 
where you said like, oh, ADHD or ADHD medications. And I kind of grew up with someone that much later on told me they took a specific ADHD medication because they were already anorexic and it helped them embrace that even further. And I didn't mm -hmm. realize people were abusing medications to assist in their, you know, eating disorder. Yeah. So that would actually, I would say that would cross over into the category of addiction related. So, or substance abuse related dysfunctional eating. Absolutely. Because there are a lot of drugs that cause appetite. And I'm talking about medications. And I'm also talking about things like heroin and cocaine and um, marijuana, you know, that affect your appetite, either plus or minus. And there are actually a lot of problems right now with people, you know, as marijuana becomes more legal, there are more people who are willing to, let's say, go to the emergency room, um, having maybe overdone it. And there's a lot of over, um, there's a lot of pot use that leads to cyclical vomiting. And a lot of people don't realize that it's because of their pot use. But then if you try to catch them vomit more, so it's really something that needs to be medically treated. But if someone doesn't know that that's happening, they might just go to the doctor and say, I can't stop throwing up. And that might lead them down a path of being evaluated for an eating disorder that doesn't really exist. So it can actually happen both ways where someone can think they have an eating disorder or a family member could think they have an eating disorder when really it's actually related to uh, drug use or abuse. And in the case of your your friend, it sounds like um, they had actually found a way to help to help themselves not feel hungry when they were under eating. And that's really unfortunate in the sense that I feel like that's happening now with the diabetes drugs that people are taking in order to not feel hungry or lose weight. And it's, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the people with diabetes who can't get the medicine they need, but it's not good for people who don't need to be taking that medicine, but are, but it's interesting that you are thinking of a friend who did that. And it sounds like you sort of identified when that friend told you that that was a, a negative that, oh, that's, that was not a productive behavior, but yet people are going to their doctor today and getting medicine that very similarly will have this a similar effect and is equally not appropriate, but because it's in the service of weight loss, our society kind of looks the other way. Yeah. And it was very much like, I was kind of aware that they under ate regularly. And then as the discussion evolved, they were like, oh yeah, because I'm on this medication, which I need, like I need the medication. Oh, okay. I chose a medication that also had this appetite suppressant mm -hmm. in it. And I was mm -hmm. like, I didn't know that was a thing. And also mm -hmm. horrific that it like assisted you in, you know, further like harming your own body. But what yeah. I hadn't heard of was people using diabetes medication to assist weight loss. What is that about? So you might have heard or you will be hearing about Ozempic or Wagovi. Those are the brand names of medication that is used to treat diabetes. And people with diabetes would lose weight as either as a side effect or as a primary action. And so doctors started prescribing it for people who don't have diabetes. And in a lot of cases, medication prescribed for someone who's not, doesn't have an illness or condition, just doesn't work. In this case, it works by making someone either feel nauseous or not hungry. And so therefore they don't eat as much and they lose weight. So it, it may not be the same mechanism of action for someone with diabetes versus without, but either way, even people without diabetes are losing weight and it's an injection 
that you get at the doctor's office, but apparently um, now you can get it at like a nurse from their home. I heard recently in, in my area is doing the injections. Um, and unfortunately it's so popular in the sense of people using it who don't have diabetes that there's a shortage now of some of these medications. And so people who actually have diabetes aren't able to get them. So it's causing a big ripple effect beyond just the idea of people using a potentially dangerous drug that they don't need in order to lose weight. It just, again, it goes to show how obsessive our society can be about weight and weight loss and how confused I think our society can be about which is, which is the, I don't know, the lesser of two evils, let's say, like, is it so important to lose weight that we would take these risks? I don't know that anyone's actually getting the honest truth about what the risks are because nobody knows what the long-term effects of these drugs are for people who don't have diabetes. Yeah. Because there's, there's not a study for, you know, like I have, I've actually heard of Ozempic when you said that I was like, Oh, I recognize that name. And I recognize that name because I've heard people talk about it and that they're like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, it helps you to lose weight. And that's the only context I'd heard it in. And so I'm like, Oh, I don't know what Ozempic is, but interesting that they're developing weight loss drugs. And now you're like, that's not what it is. And there's no study that backs the long-term use of that. No, no. And the only studies that are out there show that as soon as you stop taking it, you gain the weight back. So again, some people might say, I don't care. I just want to lose weight for the time I'm taking the medicine. But what we know, unfortunately, is that weight cycling, losing and gaining, losing and gaining is actually really harmful to the body. And I don't even know if we were taught this in nutrition school. I mean, there's so much that's very weight centric about becoming a dietitian too. But every time someone loses weight, and then gains it back, they build up more plaque in their arteries. That's just one tiny example. So when you lose weight again, you don't lose any of those plaques in your arteries. But when you gain the weight back, you get double the plaques, you can lose weight again, those plaques are still there, but then you gain weight again, now you have triple the plaque. So things like that are very, very long term consequences that someone might, might experience 20 or 30 or 40 years down the road and never associate it. They might associate it with, oh, it's because I have uh, my weight's too high because I'm, I, I weigh too much instead of associating with actually the weight cycling that's been going on for a decade or more. So that's, that's the danger. And that's so interesting that you've actually heard of Ozempic. You just never heard of it in context of what it really is. Yeah, exactly. So when we're talking about eating disorders, I feel like I only know yes. maybe three and two of those are going to be like the actual terms and then the other one's just like a general term in my mind. Anorexia. Okay, let's hear it. So I know anorexia. We hear that one pretty often and I have, you know, personal friend experience with it. Um, I know bulimia and I have seen a lot of that, you know, in like represented in TV shows. And then I just know general overeating and that's about it. Okay. So you probably are already in the top 10% of America as far as knowledge about eating disorders. So kudos to you um, for knowing that there are more than just what you've heard. That's the part that puts you over the top in, okay. you know, awareness. And it is Eating Disorders Awareness Week right now, by the way. So I'm glad that we can increase and expand your awareness. Yes, anorexia, technically it's called anorexia nervosa, bulimia, yes. And then general overeating has sort of 
evolved into a, a name called binge eating disorder, which we would probably have to differentiate from general overeating in the sense that general overeating versus binge eating disorder is hard to know. But binge eating disorder is one of those diagnostic criteria that has a specific definition, which is eating more than the average person would feel comfortable eating, feeling guilty afterwards or ashamed, eating in secret due to embarrassment. Those are the kind of things that are part of the definition, which I think if someone doesn't meet all of those criteria, that doesn't mean there isn't an issue there. But for purposes of what are the names? of eating disorders, we'll say there's binge eating disorder, and that may be what you're envisioning when you think of general overeating. So anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. There's also one called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that people abbreviate to ARFID, which is someone who is not eating enough to stay well, but in theory doesn't have any body image concerns. So they're not eating enough, but not for a reason related to weight loss. Maybe it's related to sensory or texture issues. Maybe it's related to a traumatic event related to food that makes them scared to eat, something like that. So that one's called ARFID. Then there are also things like purging disorder, where someone only uses compensatory measures, but does not binge eat. There's another one called night eating syndrome, which may or may not be a sleep disorder as opposed to an eating disorder when someone is eating in the night. There's also atypical anorexia, atypical bulimia. Um, Those really represent someone who does those behaviors but hasn't been doing them long enough or isn't underweight enough, which I think most people in my field think is kind of ridiculous because if you're doing it, then it's bad right? It's a problem. Why do we have to split hairs about how many weeks and how many times per week for how many months have you been doing this behavior? That's why me being a dietitian, I personally don't care about those things because that's not my bag. I don't need to diagnose anyone. I can say, if you feel like you're having a problem with your eating, that's good enough for me. And then there is an eating disorder that isn't used as a diagnosis, but it's called orthorexia. And that is when someone is becoming sick, trying very, very hard to eat perfectly. And through their fears of food that they are avoiding, they end up not being able to eat adequately. So those are the main ones. There's probably something else in there that I didn't think of, but those are the main ones that that come to mind that we have sort of identified as existing. And there's probably lots more. Um, like I said, there's there's lots of blurring of the lines. There's lots of overlap. There are people who wake up in the morning just determined to be anorexic and by the afternoon are experiencing binge eating disorder and by nightfall are bulimic, right? I mean, I don't even like using the, that terminology, but just the idea that someone can have only one eating behavior and they can then be defined by that is absurd. We all have lots of eating behaviors. And the question to me is more, I wish instead of basing things on which behavior you do is what gives you a diagnosis. I wish we looked at how is your eating impacting your life? And the criteria I would use is, is your eating moving you towards your goals? Is your eating moving you away from your goals? Is your eating harming your life? Is your eating threatening your life, right? Where are you on that spectrum? I'm not that concerned about whether it's under eating or overeating. If it's threatening your life, we need to get you help. And so splitting hairs over which diagnosis you have is something that 
I guess there's some people in the ivory tower of the research world who really enjoy that, um, but it's not helping anybody in the big picture, in my opinion. That was more than you wanted to know when you asked me how many eating disorders there are. No, I think that was very good because it made me think like ARFID, if I'm understanding this correctly. Mm -hmm. You know, I have some people that I know that are very nauseous from the moment they wake up. And so they're like, you know, you, usually I'll skip breakfast because I'm just too nauseous to eat. I know people that are also on like uh, hypothyroid medication. They can't eat right after they take the thing. And it's like that's mm -hmm. their accessible eating time. So they just don't. And then they'll have like a s very small meal for lunch. And then like, you know, maybe something normal at dinner. And they've openly said like, yeah, I'm way below my calorie intake, but I'm just too nauseous to, to deal with some of that. And I'm like, I think that actually falls into this category of an eating disorder. It might. And it, it needs to be sifted through to figure out, is there some kind of GI or gastrointestinal underlying problem? Is there a different medication that can help? Is there a change to the schedule that could be accommodated? I mean, there's all these pieces of the puzzle and I don't want to minimize the hurt that anyone's going through by saying like being a dietitian is so fun, but in the sense that it's so rewarding because to talk through these things with people and ask questions that they may not have thought of and piece puzzle pieces together that they may not have thought of as related and help get someone relief. That to me is the key rather than what diagnosis we give them. But in the case of ARFID, it has opened the door to some people realizing, oh, maybe I have a thing that I can get help for. Right. And it, it, even though I don't maybe fit into these traditional categories that I've heard of, of what eating disorders are. Yeah, very much so. So which of these are probably the most common? Like what's the ones we see? Is it anorexia and bulimia and binge eating because we hear about them a lot? Or is there like an underlying most common. Isn't that interesting? According to the statistics, which most statistics about eating disorders are really untrustworthy because they're often developed from research that is done on a very small slice of the population, like college students or something like that. But the statistics we have suggest that binge eating disorder is actually the most common eating disorder and crosses all demographics. Um, I think there's a lot of groups that have been left out of the conversation. Um, people who are incarcerated, people who are food insecure and don't have enough money for food. The idea that those type of individuals might have eating disorders is a little bit foreign. And I think the idea that someone overweight might have an eating disorder is foreign. It's just chalked up to sort of, you know, mistakes that that person makes in their choices type of thing. But really binge eating is, is everywhere. Binge eating disorder is the most common one because it's most likely to be the result of under eating. So think about a bigger person who's trying to lose weight, trying to under eat, but the rebound, the ricochet is binge eating. Someone who doesn't have enough food or who, for example, gets money for food on a weekly or monthly basis. And so front loading there's enough food, but then toward the end of that time period, there isn't enough food. And then if they've gone for a while without enough food, and then they get their reload, then there may be binge eating. So that's actually the most common one, even though it's definitely not the one that you are sort of seeing portrayed, right? Because binge eating disorder doesn't have a body size or a type or a, a behavior. Most of it happens usually in secret. And that's why 
as a dietitian, the most important question for anyone listening here to ask themselves when you're thinking, do I have an eating disorder? The number one question to ask yourself is, do I eat differently around people versus when I'm alone? Because that's going to point you to anything that you're ashamed of, anything you don't want other people to know. And that's, you don't have to tell anyone, just ask yourself that question. You don't even have to ask yourself. You already know the answers. Um, but that's the key is that a lot of eating disorder behaviors, especially binge eating, are very much in secret and where it's okay to talk about how you're on a diet. It's not always okay to talk about how you ate five boxes of Girl Scout cookies last night. And so we tend to open up about the under eating we do. Oh, I haven't had anything to eat since 10 o'clock, right? That's more socially acceptable, but the binge eating is more shameful wrongly so i think but it nevertheless um i think it's it would probably be big news to a lot of people that binge eating disorder is actually the most common of the eating disorders as far as we know yeah and it makes you think about it a bit differently when you say like oh people that are on these budgets like food stamps in our country in the u.s because there's a large international audience listening to this we have food stamps that are delivered to people monthly as far as I understand, like that is the, here's your allotment for the month. And it's very common for people if they can't, you know, they're not budgeting properly or it's not the correct amount, you know, it's not enough to suffice for a family or say, um, it would be very common for like right at the start of the month to be like, okay, we finally have money for food. Let's get enough food to actually make us, you know, feel satiated. And now you're like, wait, now you've overeaten. <laughs> like you have a binge eating because of a monetary restriction. Like it's happening at the front and never at the back. Right. Well, because it's a pendulum, right? I mean, that's the key is that under eating leads to overeating. That's sort of normal human behavior. Most people have had the experience of, let's say, missing a meal or being distracted or something. And then when you get in front of food, you put more on your plate than maybe you think that you sorry, you put more on your plate thinking you will eat it. And then you realize, wow, maybe I'm not even hungry for that. Sometimes you eat it anyway. But the idea that someone who's undernourished is going to be over hungry, that's normal human behavior. The opposite or the, the again, the rebound of that sometimes in our diet culture is because I overate, now I need to undereat. But that just keeps the pendulum going. The ideal would be to wake up the next day after having overeaten and said, I'm just going to eat on my normal schedule. But if you go to that undereating, that almost predicts with 100% certainty that there will be overeating again, which if you try to make up for it again the next day, that's how a lot of people find them themselves in that, in that yo-yo or pendulum of going back and forth. Now that you said that there are lots of international listeners, I'm I'm sort of scanning my language for like, like yo-yo, does everyone around the world know what a yo-yo is? So now I'm I'm wondering, like, have I said anything that's like U.S. slang? So apologies if I have. I, I small-mindedly did not think about that before you said that. No, I think it's it's one of those that the listeners of the show are very familiar with. You know, some of the like English just vernacular that we use. Okay, phew. Yeah. So now that we looked at the most common. Is there one that stands out as particularly the most dangerous of them? Oh, well, I would say they're all insidious in the sense that 
we are not paying enough attention to helping people. The dollar amount for research on per person of, that has an eating disorder is absurd. Um, if everyone with an eating disorder wanted to get into treatment today in America, there'd be 5,000 people for every one hospital bed. So they're all dangerous. But as far as what could make someone not wake up in the morning, um, there's different factors for different ones. I mean, unfortunately, doing things like, I hate to like prompt ideas or make anyone start to panic, but um, anything that, that changes your electrolyte balance in your body can unfortunately cause severe complications. Anything that causes your blood glucose to drop below normal while you're asleep or your heart rate to go below normal or stop while you're asleep. I mean, these are effects of eating disorders and it's not, it's not any particular behavior. It's just sort of the, the bad luck of the draw. Some people can do these behaviors for years and survive because their bodies are very hardy. And what am I, I'm saying like H-A-R-D-Y, like a very hardy body that can survive because of homeostasis. And then there are other people who haven't participated in these behaviors very much at all and, and don't survive. So it's kind of a, a roulette situation. I, I would hate to say, oh, this eating disorder is the most dangerous. Therefore, these others aren't dangerous because none of that is true. I mean, even something like over-exercising, we could say, well, that's not dangerous if, I don't know, if you're running on a treadmill in a gym, because then if you fall down and hit your head, then someone will call 911. But over-exercising on the street at night when someone can't see you and hits you with a car. I mean, it's like, it's way too hypothetical. I'll say all the eating disorders are dangerous ultimately because they mean a human body is not getting nourished correctly. Yeah. And we could see lots of examples of those, like someone with a very severe diabetes being anorexic for a night could be extremely dangerous because your blood sugar dictates your entire life safety. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, on the nose far yes. dip and that one's going to be really bad. Whereas yeah. a perfectly fit person that decides to only drink water for a day and work out, you know, just running, like that has a historically bad outcome in marathon runners where they have not mm -hmm. taken in anything. The water flushes, I don't know, everything out of their system, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. mix that with the sweat and the exercise and they just kind of mm -hmm. drop. That's right. That's right. You're exactly right there. It's the whole thing. I mean, eating disorder behaviors are a cocktail that we can't say for sure that any one day, one behavior is the problem. Is it the add up of, of a number of behaviors? But I'm glad actually that you mentioned um, diabetes and anorexia because there is a lot of overlap, unfortunately, with eating disorders and diabetes. And luckily, I guess, luckily, more recognition of that. Um, I've seen more recognition of that in the diabetes area than in some other areas, which are just starting to wake up to the overlap of things like cancer and eating disorders and things like that. So diabetes and eating disorders is so important. And I'm just really glad you mentioned it, even though maybe beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, um, it is really, really harmful. Some of the, the effects can actually happen a lot faster in someone with diabetes who, who doesn't have decades to survive with an eating disorder. They really need 
to get help sooner in order to preserve that quality of life moving forward. Absolutely. So what are we looking at? You know, like you said, we're woefully understaffed for things like if everyone was suddenly seeking treatment, what kind of treatments can we see? What kind of things can people engage with to better themselves to, you know, pass through this, this zone of eating disorder? So let's talk about dipping a toe in the pool, like an anonymous toe in an anonymous support group or something like that. That would be the first step to take. Just maybe look online for a support group um, where you just log in with a username and no one has to know and see if you can find um, sort of that realization that maybe this is a thing. Maybe I'm going through a thing. Maybe I could get help for this. Maybe I want to just explore and see. I would say you know, reading articles online is not super helpful just because they're so, 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 so generic, but hearing from actual people, um, that can, can help you relate. You just want to make sure you're not using those to rule yourself out. Oh, everyone in the support group is so sick and I'm not that bad. So that's why this isn't a problem. And there's actually a book called sick enough, which is an excellent book about eating disorders written by a doctor with the whole idea of you don't have to be sick enough. You you deserve to get help for whatever you're going through. And so that would be another sort of anonymous, let's say, kind of way to access information about eating disorders without having to sort of raise your hand to your own medical professional and say, I think I have a problem. Now, that leads me to caution and say, if you have a general doctor, and you think that's where you're going to get help, I think you might be sadly mistaken because sort of like mystery shopping type of stuff and then just anecdotal from individuals is if you say to your doctor that you have an eating disorder, if you are not underweight, your doctor will say, oh, you don't have a problem. And if you're overweight, they'll say, well, you just need to lose weight. General doctors, primary care doctors or medical professionals are not the place to get your eating disorder care. If you are ready to talk to a a professional, I would suggest a dietitian. Even if you're not sure if you have an eating disorder, an eating disorder specialized dietitian is someone who will help you sift through. They will not assume that you have an eating disorder. They won't assume you don't have an eating disorder. They will look at your eating behaviors with you, ask you why you think there might be an issue, what you're hoping to accomplish, what you've done so far, And that to me, if you're looking for medical care would be the best possible entry point because a dietitian, again, we're very good at sifting. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I just think we're actually really good at this. Um, Figuring out if the best next step is to see a cardiologist and make sure your heart is okay. Or is the best next step to get your vitals done by your doctor? Or is the next best step to see a counselor or you know, what we we're really good at that kind of thing. We're also willing to say, I think the next step for you is the emergency room. And I hope that that's not the case, but we're, we're okay with saying that if that's where someone needs to go, it just helps a lot to have, um, to talk things through with someone. Now there's obviously lots of books you can read, lots of testimonials of people. But again, I, I worry that a lot of that is sort of here's some good ideas for how to have a terrible eating disorder. And that's not really help. Um, So books by dietitians, things like Nourish, um, even some of the child feeding books, like How to Raise an Intuitive Eater or Intuitive Eating, those books can really help you see where your eating may not be, I don't know what the right word is, like 
it may not be where you want it to be. None of, none of those books that I just mentioned are about being a perfect eater. They're about identifying where things are going wrong and sometimes able to write them. And I would say intuitive eating is probably the best of those that I would recommend. And if you're a parent and you want to prevent um, how to raise an intuitive eater, but they're also sometimes inaccessible for, you know, depending on what your personal situation is. So again, that's where I feel like if, you know, the gold standard would be meeting with someone individually to talk through your individual situation, the dipping your toe in the pool would be getting a book or trying an online forum, uh, some kind of support group where you can hear other people saying that they are working on things, getting better um, and providing support for each other. Yeah. And there's something to say about, you know, a, going to a nutritionist, a counselor, even doing it online, you just have more time that you can get invested into it. You know, either you have like a longer appointment or you have as much time as you can spend in that meeting room, you know, online. Oh, you mean as opposed to a doctor's office? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. As yes. opposed to going to your primary, you're going to get a 15 minute time slot and they are looking for, you know, obvious critical issues and you know, they're going to look at your weight and just be like, it's not an issue right now. Lose a little bit, gain a little bit, whatever it is. You know, they right. don't have time to spend that kind of no. effort on. Definitely not things. on the implementation either. Definitely not on the implementation. I will say that there are a lot of presentations I've given, handouts, all kinds of articles and things on my website. If that's a place you want to just start and poke around, just go to Jessica Setnick slash free dash resources. And I feel like that's a, a good place to start and surprising even to me i have had people reach out to me and say i got a lot of help from just listening to your talks and i guess i forget because i'm in this world i forget that these talks that i give over and over are really new information to people and so i i would be delighted if something like that were to help you yeah absolutely and i think that's a good time to kind of tell people you know obviously you have your website Everywhere else people can find you or find more of your talks or more of your you know books if they're sure. looking to find and, you. Yeah, and we can put it in the show notes too. Yep. So if that's okay with you. So um, I'm on Facebook at Jessica Setnick. I am on, on Instagram, which is sort of my favorite rabbit hole to go down um, for cat memes, etc. And on Instagram, I'm understanding nutrition. My website is jessicasetnick.com and I do have most of my, my presentations are mostly for individuals, but most of my, like my home study course and things like that are for professionals. So if you're a professional, you're looking for eating disorders bootcamp, which is my workshop. But if you are an individual who wants to kind of take a deep dive into what's going on with your own eating, I made a workbook. The title is Food Fairy Tales, and it's about the intergenerational history that we have with food, the things that we learned from our parents, our grandparents, the people who raised us, the people around us. And it's a very interactive workbook, and, and I can give a discount code so that it'll bring the cost down. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for this. I have appreciated this time that you've given us immensely. It's been great information and a lot to learn. I wish I could wave a magic wand and, and make eating easier and, and make it make us all more immune to all the messages in the world. But the most important thing I think that 
people take away if I make sort of a closing statement is that there are a lot of mixed messages in the world about eating. And it can be really hard to kind of follow your own North Star when it comes to what you need to do. So um, I, I think the number one thing is to take away the shame and and to not make, uh, we all should understand eating. I know we think of it as this DIY project, like 5 billion people in the world eat three times a day and everyone's fine except me. That's not it at all. We are all finding our way and whatever you're going through, you're not alone, even if you feel alone. Um, I hope that you'll even reach out to me if, if I can point you in the right direction. I'm happy to try to help you find someone in your area. So I'll just give my email address. I don't mind. It's jessica at understandingnutrition.com. But the number one thing is we got to take away this shame that we all feel about not being perfect eaters because shame and secrecy are killers. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for being on and, you know, telling people it is okay. Like it's better that you ask for help than to suffer alone. Mm -hmm. better but not easy do you feel more educated after listening to this episode of the just dumb enough podcast if you really enjoyed the episode please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on itunes spotify or audible if you really like what i'm doing remember to subscribe for new episodes every week and check out the ever-expanding backlog let me know what you'd like to hear next by reaching out and emailing me dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or by sending a message to me on any of the show pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you find me. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. The updated March rankings are as follows. Number one, the United States with Oregon, Texas, and Wisconsin as top states. Number two, the United Kingdom. Number three, Canada, with Ontario taking back top province. Number four, Australia, now led by Victoria. And number five, Ireland, holding on against some stiff competition. That's it for today. I'll see you all back here on Thursday to learn more about working dogs. Buh bye bye